9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to a special edition of our podcast, as we do every week. We have a conversation with an expert on a subject that is in the news, and we let our members come into a uh, small webinar room and pose some of the questions. Welcome members who are doing that with us today. Welcome everybody who is listening uh, today. We are joined by um, uh, Emeritus Scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, Norm Ornstein, who's also a contributor at The Atlantic and is a leading expert on how our democracy works or does not. Hi, Norm. How are you? I'm very good uh, and uh, glad to be with you again, David. Very glad to have you here. Uh, just a reminder to those of you who are in the webinar room who are going to participate in our discussion, the way that you can pose a question is you go to the little Q&A uh, button at the bottom of the Zoom screen and you can then type in a question. I will uh, look at those questions and weave them into the conversation as we go. Don't do it via the chat function. Uh, don't raise your hand. Don't do those things. Just click on Q&A and give us questions. Uh, and we will uh, uh, get your questions directly to Norm. Um, no, I'll, I'll start with a couple, though. And um, I, I've noticed on uh, social media, you've been doing a lot of this recently, uh, uh, because a subject of, that, that you have established yourself as an expert on uh, has... Uh, had a kind of a, a, a renaissance as one of the hot topics in Washington, and that is um, the filibuster and how do, how do we work around it? And uh, we've discussed this here before, uh, but what makes this week different from past weeks um, uh, is the president of the United States has now said that he is uh, open to some idea of filibuster reform. Some of the centrists in the Democratic Party have indicated they're open to filibuster reform. And apparently enough of them have done this that it led Mitch McConnell uh, to make, uh, you know, uh, one of, you know, his little hypocritical displays on the floor of the Senate yesterday, where he, uh, he you know, he said that, uh, uh, you know, reforming the filibuster, changing the rules would be, uh, would create a hundred car crash on, in, the, in the Senate, ruin its status as a deliberative body. Uh, so I'll start with you asking you to comment on Mitch McConnell, and then I'm going to go from there and ask you a little bit about what you think is possible in the way of filibuster reform. So starting with Mitch, and one of the things you probably noticed uh, in my uh, Twitter uh, uh, rants is uh, a warning to uh, journalists who regularly refer to Mitch McConnell as the institutionalist in the Senate. Uh, nobody has blown up more norms in the Senate, misused the filibuster uh, from what it had been and was intended to be, uh, did a Supreme Court uh, confirmation uh, almost literally days before an election after blocking Barack Obama from getting one 
almost a year before the election. Uh, so I could go on and on about that. But McConnell obviously knows that his power in the minority, a power that he's used to great effect uh, to enable Republicans to win huge victories in midterm contests in the past, rests on that minority ability easily without doing much of anything to block actions that the president wants or his party wants. And if you tinker with that, it will reduce his power. Now, could it be misused in the future? Uh, what would happen when Republicans take a majority? Sure, uh, certainly in some respects. But his outburst is a reflection of his nervousness at what could happen and is likely to happen. And frankly, his threat that he will take the Senate down going to DEFCON 1, um, which has also been basically taken at face value by too many in the news business, uh, ignores the reality that the majority has plenty of weapons to make uh, the minority's life miserable and to accomplish its ends. So I don't take what he said at face value or seriously, but it is a reflection of the understanding that McConnell has that if you alter the filibuster rule, it's going to have a bad effect on him. Yeah, and I would I would add to that, if I may, that not only will it have a bad effect on him as the master of, of the minority strategies within the Senate, but uh, in particular, one of the things that the Democrats seem to be interested in doing is um, uh, passing legislation like H.R. 1 that seems, you know, that is focused on uh, countering uh, Republican efforts at voter suppression across the country. So, you know, you know, it's a, it's a twofold effect because they want to cheat in the Senate and they want to cheat nationally. Well, certainly the impetus for change now is far more democracy reform and election reform than anything else. We have over 250 efforts out across many states where there are Republican legislatures, Republican governors to alter voting rules to suppress votes. You know, a couple of uh, good examples. In Florida, they're trying to outlaw all drop boxes, making it much more difficult for people who want to vote by mail, and they're cutting the number of days in which you can do so. In Arizona, they have proposed a, uh, a new law that would say that if you cast a vote by mail on the Thursday before the election, five days in advance, and even if it is delivered by election day, it won't count. Uh, we have many, many other examples in Georgia where Republicans passed a whole series of laws to make voting by mail easier because they thought that was their voters, after an election that the governor and the secretary of state Republicans said was the fairest they had seen, uh, they're trying to repeal those because it turned out that they benefited Democrats and especially people of color. So finding ways to protect the right to vote is essential uh, for our democracy and Democrats know it can't be done with the existing filibuster rule. Now, I'm not sure that they can get 50 votes for H.R. 1 as it stands, which is a huge bill with an awful lot in it, some controversial provisions. But let's just talk about the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, um, which would take care of the uh, objections that the Supreme Court had in the Shelby County decision to a Voting Rights Act 
set of amendments that had been adopted in Congress unanimously in one branch uh, and nearly unanimously in the other. And now Republicans oppose it. That tells you a lot about where we are in terms of voter suppression. Bring that up with a different kind of rule um, where Republicans have a burden on them to block it and they have to explain over and over again why they're for voter suppression and you got a different reality in the world. And that's what we're talking about in terms of changing the filibuster. There are not 50 votes in the Senate among Democrats to completely abolish the rule as it exists and simply move the margin for bringing up and passing every uh, piece of legislation by 50, 51 votes. But there, uh, now we're seeing the ice breaking for reforms that would shift the burden from where it is now entirely on the majority to putting it heavily on the minority, which is the way it was through most of the 100 plus years that we've had uh, any concept of a filibuster. Right. And I think that's a good point to remind uh, viewers of, too, people who talk about institutionalists. For the first 200 years of the United States uh, government, uh, filibuster was uh, seldom used and uh, only then uh, typically under uh, fairly odious circumstances. It was only in the past 20 or so years that it became used more frequently. Um, I've got a few questions popping up here. I want to remind people that if they've got questions, put them into the Q&A uh, uh, till here and I'll, I'll turn to them in a moment. But I'm going to ask one more question of my own. And it goes back to your point about the number of votes that may exist for reform. Uh, when I watch... Uh, watch McConnell, I thought to myself, uh, you know, for the past four years, he, like many in the Republican Party, would often be speaking for an audience of one, which was to say Donald Trump. Um, uh, I, when I heard his statement yesterday, I, I had the sense that he was speaking for an audience of one again, uh, but that that was Joe Manchin. Um, and that, you know, Joe Manchin has put himself, perhaps with uh, uh, Kristen Cinema. Uh, in the position of determining just how far we can go in this, um, uh, because you know he and she uh, have indicated some uh, reluctance to embrace reform. How far will they go? Um, what I can tell you is this: there is no chance for the next many months that Joe Manchin or Kirsten Cinema or probably Diane Feinstein, as long as she is in the Senate will vote to simply reduce the number to 51 as has happened twice before on nominations for lower courts and the executive branch and for the Supreme Court. But reforming the filibuster, the concept of returning it to something where the burden is on the minority, there are a lot of options there that I believe Manchin will embrace. And they are options that, uh, if McConnell decides that he is going to try and blow up the Senate as a consequence, Manchin would put the blame on McConnell, not on any of the actions they had taken. What are they? We know now that one of the major things, the thing that uh, Joe Biden talked about in his interview yesterday, Manchin raised it uh, in a few interviews uh, last weekend, is what's called the talking filibuster. Now, people should not be uh, should not buy into a kind of misconception that in the old days, you had to stay on the floor and speak, a la Mr. Smith goes to Washington. But we did have in the past filibusters, including some that went 
around the clock for days on end. I mean, uh, those of us who are old enough remember the drama of the civil rights filibusters where the segregationists did this and talked at length. Um, the idea here is that you require the minority as long as they are trying to delay action on a bill to hold the floor and debate the subject at hand, uh, what's called germanely rather than you know, just reading from any random book or talking gibberish. Uh, that alone is probably not gonna work as long as the way in which you are able to stop the debate and move to a vote is you need uh, three-fifths of the entire Senate or 60 senators. That still keeps the large part of the burden on the majority. So what I would envision as a real possibility is a, an amalgam of approaches that includes one that I and Al Franken in particular have pushed for several years now, which is you flip the numbers. Instead of 60 required to stop debate and move to act on uh, policy, 41 senators have to be there and insist in, in a vote on continuing to debate. And you put that together with the requirement that you be on the floor debating and uh, you've got, uh, and it, it has to be germane, and I think you've got something pretty potent. Now, the other option is you do this talking filibuster, but you say that uh, a, an opponent of moving forward can take the floor once, can speak for as long as that senator is able to speak, and then turn it over to somebody else, but you can't come back a second time. And that way, at most, you're going to have 50 uh, senators now, if it's the Republicans who are uh, filibustering, who will have their day uh, on the Senate floor. Some are going to go for 12 hours. Maybe somebody can approach Strom Thurmond's record of 24 hours. Others, including some octogenarians, might be able to do it for two or three hours. But ultimately, when there's nobody else left to be able to debate, you just move on and you're able to move to a vote. Uh, that at least is one possibility that would take it to a level that at, in theory actually eliminates the 60 vote hurdle or the supermajority hurdle, but it satisfies the idea that the minority has to go to great lengths and that ultimately they can't stop things from happening. And if you take the floor for all of those hours, and that means you can't bring up other things, you can't bring up the nominations that are really essential for Biden to move forward uh, with his uh, executive branch in his own agenda. Uh, you can't deal with other legislation and it's a pretty big burden on the minority as well. Maybe Manchin would uh, succeed in another of his goals, which is to force some bipartisan compromise. But those are just some of the tools that you could use here. Um, and there are variations in between. I raised some of them in a Washington Post piece uh, just a week or so ago. Uh, that I'm pretty confident, including with conversations that have been had with the principals, um, we'll find a, a, an ability and a way to get to 50 votes probably sooner rather than later. Um, one, one of them, and I think maybe you touched upon it here, but I just want to clarify, was a proposal that I've heard uh, that would require uh, three-fifths of those present to, to vote for it. Uh, so, you know, people would actually have to be on the floor for the vote. Is that also possible? Yeah. So uh, just to uh, rewind and do a little bit of history, before 1975, from 1917 to 1975, the way Rule 22, the filibuster rule worked, 
it took two thirds of those present and voting to invoke cloture, as it's called. It actually means closure, stop it, move on. Uh, and then they moved in 1975 to a rule that was three fifths of the entire Senate. There's been a widespread misconception and awful lot of newspaper pieces and commentary that they lowered the threshold from three, uh, two thirds to three fifths. It actually in some ways raised the threshold because if it's two thirds of those present and voting, then if uh, 25 senators don't show up, you only need 50 votes to stop debate and move on if you go round the clock and really tire them out. But if it's three fifths of the entire Senate, the majority is the one that has to come up with the 60 votes. So if you now move just to the three fifths of those present and voting, that itself puts a big burden on the minority. You know, now if you decide, all right, we want to dramatize the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. So we're going to go round the clock. The minority doesn't have to be there except for one or two members to keep bad things from happening. The majority has to show up to make a quorum and to try to get to the 60 votes. You know, Al Franken has this story that early in his Senate career, he said to a Republican colleague, see you on Monday. And the colleague said, oh, no, I won't be there. It's just a cloture vote. You have to be there. I don't. And that's got to change. If you have it three-fifths of those present and voting, if only 80 senators show up, you only need 48 votes. So you've got to keep them on cots, round the clock, outside the Senate floor. It makes a big burden on the minority that doesn't exist now. And it's another easy way of uh, shifting things back to what you need to do now, which is to put that burden, if you want to filibuster on the minority, and if you do that, they're not going to filibuster all the little things that are just designed to delay action, uh, to make it a weapon of mass obstruction. They'll only do it with big things, and it'll be punishing. Yeah, and as Adam Gentleson points out in his book, and I know you've done some of these conversations with Adam, um, uh, right now the way you, you uh, uh, block a bill is you phone in to the cloakroom. I mean, you don't, yeah. you don't have to do anything. It's, it's, it's super easy to do. Let me get to some of these questions that folks have uh, posted up here. Uh, and I'll encourage others who have questions. They can also post them up. Um, uh, one is, is, is pretty practical nuts and bolts question. How long would the process take to change the rule? I mean, is it, is it something that, you know, once Chuck Schumer decides to do it and he manages to get Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema on board, he can do it one afternoon? I mean, is... yes. The answer is yes. You know, the way they've changed the rule now the last couple of times is uh, in effect um, the parliamentarian rules on what exists. There is an appeal of the ruling of the chair. Uh, there's a roll call vote on the appeal. A majority can overturn the ruling and can, in effect, rewrite the rules just right then and there. So it can be done in a half an hour. Um, is there any data that exists about public opinion on this? Is this way inside the beltway and something that's invisible to the average American voter? Do they care about it? So it has been invisible in the past. And it's one of the problems, frankly, that's existed with the existing rule. So um, I'll give you an example of how it could work if we have what we have now 
going forward. The House has just passed um, a bill uh, for universal background checks on guns, supported by 94% of Americans. It'll go to the Senate. If uh, McConnell says, you know what, we're, we're not going to support that, you don't have the 60 votes, then it pretty much just dies. Nothing will happen and it will get no public attention. So the public won't really know that this died because of a filibuster. And most of the press corps, frankly, over the last 15 years, when they've reported on these things, the report has been something died on a vote of uh, 55 to 45. They don't say a majority supported it, but the minority killed it. So this has not been something that more than the wonks out there and a few other activists have understood to be the obstacle that it is. That I think is changing now. And it's changing in part because people are more sophisticated in the sense they're onto the importance of this rule change. They now see what can be blocked and they have a president who's determined to push a lot of big things um, but uh, I think uh, also the focus on voting rights has shifted attention and made it very, very clear, as so many have pointed out, that our democracy is in danger and the greatest danger is coming from this rule. So where there are surveys, there are surveys that say you ought to be able to have a majority to act. Yeah, I, by the way, I would encourage everybody who has not seen it or has not uh, reviewed it in this context to go back to the remarks at the funeral of John Lewis by Barack Obama on just this point and and on saying, you know, if we have to change the filibuster rule to save democracy, we've got to do that. Uh, it, it, you know, he was on a national stage then and, and, and I think others um, are, are taken to this. Were you surprised to hear President Biden sort of change his view. I, I, one thing that I, I saw in one of the stories um, of, about this, which is quite striking and I think needs to be underscored for people, uh, is that of course, when Joe Biden entered the Senate in 1972, the prior rule applied. Yes. It's not so long ago that you know, he, you know, he, he missed out on that. He was there for it. He was there. And the other important thing to say, uh, David, is that after they changed the rule, it wasn't like immediately we saw the unintended consequence of moving from a present voting standard to an absolute standard. The norms of the Senate held. And for three decades, filibusters remained pretty rare and generally occurring around big national issues. And they weren't always partisan, by the way. It was only when Mitch McConnell got his hands on the weapon and saw how he could use it that we had all of these changes. Now, was I surprised? I was not shocked for two reasons. One is Biden may have uh, talked unrealistically about uh, Republicans being willing to cooperate in the epiphany that they have, but he's a realist and understood and understands that that uh, might require uh, a different approach looking down the road. But then we had the American Rescue Act. And there, it's an interesting process. So uh, we have, uh, as I think most of our participants will uh, know, uh, this one way in which you can get a vote expedited with just a simple majority, usually once a year, 
this budget reconciliation process. That's what was used to get the Bush tax cuts in 2001 and 2003. It was vital to the passage of the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, uh, and it was used by Trump and McConnell to get their big tax cut in 2017. Uh, so the American Rescue Act came up that way with a simple majority uh, allowing it to move forward. What Joe Biden told the Republicans in the Senate was, look, we've got 50 votes. We can do this $1.9 trillion package on our own. I'd rather have some of you involved so we can get a bipartisan buy-in and a supermajority. And you know, if 10 Republicans had said, all right, He's going to get 1.9 trillion with a lot of things that we're not happy with, like 350 billion dollars in aid to state and local governments. So let's come up with an alternative and then negotiate, and we can get some real changes here. They were going to do that. They would have come up with a package of say 1.4 trillion or 1.5 trillion, and cut that number going to state and local governments from 350 billion to 150 billion. And then they would have sat down and negotiated and horse traded. And the ultimate outcome, which Biden would have been very happy to have, might have been 1.7 trillion instead of 1.9 with some significant policy changes. Uh, and you would have had over 60 votes. But they showed they weren't serious. And Republicans sat down and came up with an alternative that was absurd on its face less than a third of what Biden was asking for with most of the things that he wanted not even there. So I think Biden has understood with that something that's a necessity in the country right now that's hurting so badly because of COVID and people who are one seventh of Americans who are uh, not getting enough food, uh, American families, that um, we're in a different world now. And it's a world of obstruction and that you've got to make some changes. Now, you know, he had never said he was against reforming the filibuster. He had said he was against ending the filibuster. And that's the opening we have with Biden, with Manchin, with Cinema, with some others to be able to get that 50 votes to at least give a fighting chance to make some of these important things happen. Another thing that some people talk about as a step towards uh, achieving bipartisanship, and I think you're right to point out that we've entered a new stage of cynicism where not only do the Republicans not intend to vote or take these things seriously, we actually saw in the wake of the American uh, uh, Rescue Plan, Republicans who voted against it then taking credit for it, uh, which was, you know, I mean, it shows sort of just how sort of sad this this whole process has gotten where they say, well, I negotiated behind the scenes um, and got what we wanted, but, uh, you know, I voted against it because in the end, it wasn't what I wanted. But one other thing that people talk about, and there's a question here about, are uh, earmarks. Uh, and some people have pointed out that although, you know, earmark reform uh, came because they felt it was being abused, it was kind of a source of corruption, which is to say, you know, directing monies uh, towards the particular supporters of Congress people, um, that it led to that horse trading that you were talking about, that at least when there were earmarks, you could go and sit with the senator from X and say, look, this bill can help your people. Why don't you fight for something in this bill? And that that in turn uh, might uh, you know, produce compromise as it has throughout 
you know, the history of the Republic. So we're on the verge of uh, another set of earmark reforms that will bring them back in a different form. Uh, and it was a, a seminal development today that House Republicans signed on to that uh, new practice. It was really put together by Rosa DeLauro, uh, the chairman of the House Appropriations Committee, but based on recommendations from a reform committee, the Committee on the Modernization of Congress in the House that was the only thoroughly bipartisan uh, group from the last Congress. And it's to take away uh, most of the ways in which uh, these earmarks could be corrupted. Um, you know, you're always gonna have people who will find ways to uh, be corrupt, but this is a very positive set of changes. It's not earth shaking, but the fact that you can bring back ways in which members of Congress can get in projects that are of real need back in their districts and state means that you have chips to play in bringing people together. And frankly, if we get some of these circumstances of hypocrisy, as we saw with the American Rescue Act, of people who bargain, get something for their district in a bill, and then vote against the bill, uh, it's not that difficult to take out the benefits and make it clear that there's a price to be paid if you're gonna be a hypocrite. So that's a positive step. And you know, even in a big reconciliation bill, and we actually have another ability to do one uh, in 2021, that may include infrastructure, a tax increase uh, to help pay for many of the things that have been done, uh, some of the reforms in the healthcare system. Uh, you know, if we do infrastructure that way, then with a reconciliation bill that then has to go to all the individual committees to uh, write the details to implement it, that's when you can put in some of those earmarks. And it means that you're much more likely to get uh, more than one party supporting it. Um, okay, two more questions here. We've only got about uh, eight more eight more minutes. Um, to what extent would the return of the talking filibuster um, be enough to accomplish some of the goals of Democrats? Do you, do you, you know, is would this be transformative, and 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 the Democrats would now move on and simply do what fifty-one people want, or is this something that is only going to have a, 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 an effect occasionally? So the devil's in the details here. If all that's required here is that people have to be on the floor uh, and talk, um, and they can talk for as long or as little as they want, and they can do a tag team to have others come forward, but ultimately you're still gonna need three-fifths of the Senate to move to a vote, uh, that's not enough. Because if you've got 50 senators and you're gonna talk for weeks, you know, you can divide it up. All right, you do two hours, uh, Senator A, Senator B will do two hours, Senator three will do four hours and so on. And then you can keep coming back. And the burden is actually on the majority in two ways. One, they can keep going for a long time while you can't do anything else. And two, you're still gonna have to get that 60 votes. So uh, it only works if you can make the pain on the minority greater, that you can limit how often individuals can speak while they have to maintain the floor. And then ultimately, uh, when there's nobody else left to speak, you can just move to a vote um, or do uh, the talking filibuster in combination with one of the things that we've been talking about. 
three-fifths of those present and voting, or uh, 41 votes needed to continue debate, even as they have to be on the floor debating while votes can take place at almost any time. And at the end of the day, this is something that could come into being uh, should the Democrats uh, have some kind of unity in supporting it, right? I mean, if, yeah. if Manchin and Cinema uh, get the Democrats to 50 and the vice president's in the room, these changes could be made. Yeah, and you know, the other thing to keep in mind here is the threat of doing this, the credible threat of doing this, may in fact now get 10 Republicans to say, you know what, let's try and head this off by actually working with them. So if I were uh, Chuck Schumer right now, and if I were Joe Biden, I would say, you know what, bring up right now the John Lewis Voting Rights Act uh, and have some debate and deliberation committees, have some opportunities for amendments by Republicans. If they filibuster that, then we move immediately to uh, the major kind of reform that we're talking about. And maybe you'll be able to get some of these things done right now with the threat of a rules change. Ultimately, I believe the rule is going to change anyhow, because, you know, the bottom line reality here is from going back to the uh, first two years of Bill Clinton's administration with Newt Gingrich uh, leading the strategy to the first two years of Obama and the first two years after his reelection, the Republican strategy has been to unite like a parliamentary minority party vote in unison against everything, block what you can, delegitimize what you can't, and delegitimize the president. And they won the first majority in 40 years in 1994, more seats than in 100 years in 2010, the Senate in 2014. It's folly to believe that as a general matter, they're gonna transform themselves or do anything other than follow that same strategy. And that means that as the ice cracks with uh, Joe Manchin talking about some reform and Joe Biden talking about some reform, that we're going to get some reform. Interesting. Encouraging. Again, we only have three or four minutes. There's three or four questions. So we're kind of into the lightning round lightning here. Round. What would you say to the Democrats who are worried filibuster reform will become a problem when they're in the minority next? If anybody believes that uh, Mitch McConnell would be deterred from changing the rules because Democrats had restraint, they have been asleep for the last 15 years. If, if it serves his purpose, he will do it in a nanosecond. What's the state of negotiations between leadership and the caucus on these issues? I mean, they're, they're... Uh, intensifying right now, and I expect we're going to see more of that within the next couple of weeks. Um, who, who is the lead on this in the Senate? Is it Jeff Merkley of Humber. Oregon has been a major uh, reformer for a long time, and he's been given the lead by uh, Chuck Schumer. Uh, interesting. Oh, why can't reconciliation be used more broadly? The way the rule is written, it's got some constraints and more in the Senate even than in the House. There's the so-called bird rule that matters have to be directly related to the budget, which is why the minimum wage uh, was not included in reconciliation. But you also have to have a balance 10 years out. You cannot add to the debt or deficit. So most of these uh, tax bills, for example, have ridiculous provisions built in that the tax cuts that are huge uh, end after 10 years so that you can uh, then say all this revenue is going to flow in. Um, and you have to do things that are stupid just to abide by the rules. 
It's also possible they could change the reconciliation rules. It's another backdoor way of altering the filibuster. Okay, one last question here, uh, which is not on the point of, of, of the filibuster, um, but I'll, I'll, I'll pose it anyway, because somebody's taking the time to write it. It says here, I'm still so disappointed Democrats ended up not calling witnesses for the impeachment trial. Is it true that they buckled because McConnell threatened to grind all the other business to a halt? If so, why did they let him get away with that or at least not publicly make it an issue? I don't believe that that's the reason. I think the fundamental reason is that it wasn't gonna change any outcomes, but also most of the witnesses they wanted to call were not gonna be cooperative witnesses. And uh, they were intimidated or they would refuse to testify. You'd have to go through a lengthy process uh, to uh, get them in with subpoenas and the fighting of those subpoenas. And it would have dragged on into the next administration with its own priorities. So it was a pragmatic choice that was probably the best choice they could make at the time. I'm just hoping that we will get the kind of investigation that follows. We're already starting to see some of the things come out about uh, Donald Trump's behavior. And we definitely need a fact-finding commission with subpoena power that is not going to have as a large number of members the uh, obstructionists who themselves voted that the election was rigged. Uh, just, I have a, a last question here as I'm thinking about it. There was some sort of light buzz the past couple of weeks about McConnell's own future. Um, I think he's 78 years old. He's, he, he, you know, and Almost the question 80. is whether he'll run again. Um, and, uh, you know, if McConnell were to disappear, he's been a particularly bad actor in regards to this. Do you think the next person or people up would behave in the same way? Or is, is the McConnell era going to stand apart primarily because of who Mitch McConnell was? Uh, I'm not sure uh, what the answer to that is. McConnell is a particularly pernicious leader. His predecessor, Trent Lott, uh, and uh, predecessors, Trent Lott, Bill Frist, we're not nearly as hardline or as bad as he is. But when I look at the uh, Republican uh, members in the Senate right now, I don't see a whole lot who would be dramatically different or better. The approach that they've used, the tribalism that uh, they have invoked, the extremism that's there, um, we're, we're still a long ways from having a problem-solving oriented, institutionally-minded Republican Party Certainly the House is going way off into crazy land, uh, but the Senate is not that far behind. Uh, well, interesting. And uh, 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 certainly uh, the, the trends bear that out and our concerns about what may happen in the midterms uh, loom large for that reason as well. Uh, Norm, thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks for being encyclopedic in your knowledge and, and, and so fluent in your ability to address the questions of those who joined us. Thanks to those of us who came into the webinar today with questions, and I encourage folks in the future to join us. We do these things, I think, every Wednesday uh, with uh, top experts like Norm. Thanks for joining, and thanks for posing your questions and making it uh, such a lively uh, discussion. Thanks to everybody for uh, listening, for our members for supporting uh, these uh, Q&A uh, conversations. Um, and we invite you to join us again for all the other podcasts we're doing each and every week. Go to the dsrnetwork.com for more information about that. Thank you, Norm, very much. I hope all of your wisdom makes its way into the United States Senate um, real soon. 
Um, and we hope you will come back and join us again. Uh, for everybody else, thanks a lot. Bye-bye.